checking in with us tonight, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9 this or this evening, Matthew chapter 9 this evening, just continuing our study here. I know we covered a brief um, portion last week of uh, chapter 9, we're just going to do a brief review and then get right back into it. Matthew chapter 9 tonight, start reading in verse 1 here. Now in Matthew chapter 9, it's a very interesting chapter. Um, we do have in this chapter, the, the theme is really Christ's authority. And throughout um, the different instances here, as we go through Matthew chapter 9, you're going to see Christ's authority exemplified in a number of ways over specific things. We really want to highlight that um, tonight, and hopefully we'll get a little bit into chapter uh, 10 as well. So let's start reading here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, saith unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts, for whether it is it easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. Dear Heavenly Father, just please be with us tonight. Help us to magnify your word. Help us to exalt you. Please be with the preaching where we praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So first we see here um, Christ's authority over uh, sin. Christ's authority to forgive sins. Um, obviously, Matthew's writing to the nation of Israel. He's writing specifically to the Jews. And this was something that he wanted the Jews to know. He recorded this event um, in opposition to their theory that Christ wasn't the Messiah and that he didn't have this power. Because a uh, Pharisee in that day and age thought that God the Father was the only one uh, who had this kind of power to forgive sin. So obviously, uh, you remember the story, the other gospel accounts record it, how these men brought this man sick of the palsy through the roof. They lowered him down because the house was too full um, in order to actually get the man to them. And it says that Jesus, seeing their faith, again, their faith in what? Their faith in Jesus Christ's position as the Messiah and his power on earth to for not only forgive sins, but also heal their infirmities. He honored their faith and he healed the man, but he initially first said, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the whole purpose of the healing was to substantiate the claim that he had the authority to do that. You know, it's very um, neat uh, as we go through the Gospels to highlight how cool it is that miracles happen, right? It's very cool that Jesus Christ forgave um, sins, but that he also healed men of their diseases. But the focus is always, right? The focus is always our relationship to God, regardless of whether or not he would do this to us. Um, the fact is, you remember the disciples as they came back from their ministry, and they said, Jesus, you'll never believe it, but the demons, even the demons are subject unto us. And what did he tell them? He said, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, that your names are written in heaven. The whole point, I mean, Jesus didn't even want to have to do these things, um, but he did them to testify of his divinity. But God seeks to, to have a relationship with us. It's not just to heal us uh, physically. Um, but it's that we may know that he is the one and only true God. And so he showed here in this uh, brief passage his authority to forgive sins. He forgave the man's sins, and then he uh, showed his divinity by allowing him to take up his bed and walk, giving the Pharisees nothing that they could say at that point. There was nothing they could do to negate such a thing. In verse um, 8, it says, But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now again, this was important in verse 10. You'll see it says, It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. 
And you remember how Matthew was a publican, meaning that he was a Jew, but he was a tax collector. He was a mediator between the Romans and the Jews as he would um, collect taxes from the Jews to the Roman government. But obviously he, as well as the other publicans, had to make a living. And so there was a lot of manipulation there as far as what they would claim for taxes. And the Jews hated these people. A publican would have been on the same uh, line as a harlot or a Gentile or a sinner or, or a leper for that matter. And so the Jews hated these people. But this is now you're going to see Christ's authority over men as he takes Matthew and he says, follow me. And along with Matthew came all of Matthew's friends and people in association to him, all the publicans and, and the sinners came with Christ. And in verse uh, 10, and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? They looked on Christ who said that he was the Messiah, but in their mind, the Messiah never would associate with people that they, according to the law, said that they should not associate with. But again, the righteousness of the law was true repentance and the identification of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, which is something that the um, Pharisees missed. That's why Jesus says in verse 12, but when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we understand that Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And you think of here, Jesus says, go ye and learn what that meaneth. Well, there was an individual in the Old Testament by the name of David who already learned this lesson in accordance with the law. In Psalm 51, after David committed his famous sin with Bathsheba, in verse 15, it says, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall shoot forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. David in the Old Testament, after he sinned with Bathsheba, the proper Jewish thing to do would be to go to the priest and, 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 and provide a sacrifice that would provide atonement for that specific sin. But David, in his foreknowledge of the true purpose of the law, saw that those sacrifices and those things were never sufficient. God wanted the heart of the individual in a spirit of repentance. He wanted the heart of the individual in obedience with him. And so Jesus Christ commanded the Pharisees in the same way, go ye and learn what this meaneth, right? It's not just the vanity of providing sacrifices for temporary atonement, but it's the position of your heart in true righteousness in obedience with the law. In verse 14, it says, so number one, just to, just to remind you, number one, we see Christ's authority to forgive sin with the sick of the palsy. We see Christ's authority over men and his calling Matthew to follow him as a publican. And then as we go into verse 14, it says, Then came to him the disciples of John, John the Baptist, saying, Why do we in the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Now this is interesting. Now the Pharisees, right, they want to catch uh, Christ in some kind of doctrinal contradiction, so they get some of John's followers because the one thing that they could identify with that they both did was fast. But we understand by the Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees abused the, the idea of fasting. They did it twice a week, very habitually, without any kind of purpose. They would disfigure their faces, walk barefoot, put ashes on their face so that all men could see. And Jesus says, that's not the type of fasting that I honor. He goes, when you fast, clean your face. Don't allow yourself to appear unto men to fast, um, th that you may appear unto God to fast. So number one, this whole question, right? Jesus is sitting and he's eating. That's why they ask the question. He's eating with publicans and sinners. And they say, why, why, why do we, right? Why do we as John the Baptist disciples fast? The Pharisees also fast, but you claim to be the Messiah and you don't. And now number one, they couldn't make that kind of judgment call. Because again, just as we just said, based on the Sermon on the Mount, 
true fasting, how would they even know if the disciples were fasting? Because if they were doing it in accordance with how Christ commanded, you wouldn't be able to tell. They, would, they wouldn't present themselves to men looking this way. But they were eating, right? So we know that they weren't fasting. Jesus makes a statement here in verse 15. He says, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away, and then shall they fast, and then shall they fast. In verse uh, 16, No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh away the garment, taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out. And the bottles perish, but they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now here, again, Jesus is he, he's giving like examples, right? He's giving parables to them of why his disciples are not fasting. In, in Jewish tradition, is if there was to be a marriage, all the guests were assembled and the feast was prepared as soon as the bridegroom would come in and he would announce the feast, that the feast was at hand. And just as it would be unfitting for people of a wedding party with the bridegroom there to fast when they have the feast prepared in front of them, it, it, it would be so contradictory with the disciples as they have Christ, which is the true bridegroom, in order for them to fast, right? He, so you see Christ's authority here over tradition, right? They, they, they were mistaken in thinking, you know, he gives the parable of putting a new cloth into an old garment or new wine into old bottles. What he's saying is, is I'm not coming as the Messiah to bring about a reformation of your old traditions. I'm not here to reform what you're doing. I'm bringing in the new way, right? I'm bringing in what you have prepared yourself for, the whole intent of fasting. I am, I am the reason why you fast, fasted up until this point. But the kingdom is come. The kingdom is being offered. The feast is at hand. These, these traditions, right, they, they don't avail anymore. The time has come. The feast is there. Uh, come and dine, come and eat. And so he was showing his authority over through the tradition, right? They weren't identifying. They didn't, they didn't get that the feast was at hand. So they're fasting, awaiting something. He goes, what are you awaiting? What are you waiting for? I am the bridegroom. I have come. The feast is at hand. The new wine is here. The old bottles cannot contain the new wine of the kingdom. And so he was showing here his authority specifically over tradition. Now, as we get into verse 18, it says, While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. Now, who is this individual? We know by the other gospel accounts, including Mark, that his name was Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, he really, in all honesty, could have been one of the men that introduced the centurion a couple chapters back to Christ in the first place, since he was one of the rulers of the synagogue and had that type of connection. So that's probably who it was. But he comes to Christ and he says, My daughter is even now dead. Lay thine hand upon her and she shall live. We understand that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Wherever he went, life followed. And so here we see Christ's authority over disease and death. Over disease and death. Now if you'll keep on reading in verse 19, And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. If you've ever heard the, the famous phrase that says, if you're only holding on by a thread, make sure it's the hem of his garment. She touched his garment in verse 21. It says, for she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But when Jesus turned him about and when he saw her, he said, daughter, be of good cheer, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Now, interesting story, a very popular story. But I want to uh, encourage you with this. In the other gospel accounts, it says that the multitudes were thronging Christ when this happened. And he stops with his disciples and he said, who touched me? And they're like, you got to be crazy. You have all these people that are, that are ju literally jumping on you right now. And a woman, you know, you know, somebody touches you and you identify with that. 
and you stop and you know dead in your tracks. But it says that he knew that virtue had gone out of him. So picture this, you have Christ walking through this crowd. He's being thronged by multitudes, but he only notices one specific touch. And it wasn't even on his body, it was the hem of his garment. Just think about that, number one, from a practical standpoint. Look at all the other people who were grabbing onto Christ's body, and yet he only felt one touch of actual virtue. And it's just crazy to think of us, how, how we desire Christ and what kind of faith we have in Christ. Uh, to think about, does, does he notice our virtue in that specific fashion? Aside from just maybe a selfish prayer or a selfish act of service towards Christ, he knew that virtue had gone out of him. But let me encourage you with this. She had faith in his person. And he said, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now there's a lot of faith healers in people nowadays. This is one of those dangerous verses where you can make people believe some kind of false uh, teaching where they would say, thy faith hath made thee whole as if we somehow as, as apostles of Christ or as preachers can somehow make someone whole physically, specifically by their faith. We don't live in that type of dispensation. And so she had faith in his person. We have faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And it, and, it, and it heals us from our sin. It forgives us. It seals us. It, it, it seals us until the day of redemption. But that doesn't necessitate the fact that I'm going to have physical healing. And a lot of people have been turned away from Christ because these faith healers come and they attempt to heal people. And then the people don't get healed. And what do they say? Well, you didn't have enough faith. And it's, that's not what Christ is doing here. She had faith in his person and who he was in relation to the kingdom. And that healed her. She obtained the blessings of the kingdom because of her faith in his person. Think about what you know Paul said in our dispensation. When he asked God to take away his physical infirmity, he besought Christ three times. And God says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Right In our dispensation, we walk by faith, not by sight. And our faith isn't determined by the fact of whether or not God can heal our physical infirmities. We don't have that type of kingdom promise. What did Paul say? He said, he said, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. But it doesn't say that God's going to just grant those requests. What does it say? It says, in the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds, what? Through Christ Jesus. In our dispensation, we have faith in God in accordance to what we can't see, in accordance to what we can always feel. And so it's a different type of dispensation. So it's great that she got healed in this form, but you got to be careful because there's people that take this verse out of context. And they want to use it as some kind of healing verse to us in our dispensation. And that's not what it, that's not what it is uh, intended for at all. It was a testimony to Christ's authority over disease and death and her specific faith that Christ could heal her. Now, as we go down in verse uh, 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making noise, making a noise, he said unto them, give place for the maid is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand. And the maid arose, and the fame uh, hereof went abroad in all that land. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and, and Jesus saith unto him, Here's another kind of along the same lines. He goes, Believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Now look, he said, according to your faith. Again, there's people that take that verse, and they say, according to your faith, God will heal or and or not heal you, or he will grant this request or not grant this request. Again, they were identifying with who he was as the Messiah. They said, Thou son of David. He said, You have faith that I can do this. They said, Yea, Lord. And because of their belief in the person of who he was and his ministry at that time, 
he healed their physical infirmity. But again, it's according to the kingdom program, the kingdom program. Jesus Christ was the rightful king, therefore the, the blessings and the promises of the kingdom flowed to those who had faith in his person at that specific time. You can have all the faith in the world. Paul had, if anybody had faith that Paul, that Jesus Christ could heal his infirmity, it would have been Paul, and yet God did not grant his request. Did Paul not have faith? Did those in the New Testament who, who died and, and were killed for the sake of Christ, did they not have faith? No. We just live in a different dispensation. In verse 31 it says, But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb man spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of devils. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The multitudes that thronged Christ, right? They, they, they did not have a shepherd up until this point. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they could not shepherd this people. Their doctrine was false. It was not enough to get them into the kingdom. And, and Jesus had compassion on these multitudes as they were scattered abroad. And in verse 37, he says, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Again, it's a harvest, right? What do you do at a harvest? You reap the fruit and you separate the chaff from the wheat. That was Christ's ministry. That's not the ministry, right? The, the principle is here, right? We need more laborers to, to reach the loss. But the principle at this time, it was a harvest. It was a time of judgment that Christ was bringing. The Pharisees and those who rejected the kingdom would be cast aside. And those who were deemed righteous in the sight of God would gain entrance into this kingdom. Now in, verse, in chapter 10, and we'll speed along here, chapter 10, Jesus Christ is going to acquire his laborers, specifically his 12 disciples. It says, and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, again, representing the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, he gave them power. He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of these 12 apostles are the first Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus and Levius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, as we get into chapter into chapter 10, you've got to be very careful because chapter 10 is going to talk about the, the specific events. He's going to give instructions for the disciples' immediate journey. He's also going to give warnings against further persecutions. He's going to mention the culminating of the second advent when the nation of Israel is actually going to turn to Christ, when Christ comes back the second time. And then he's going to talk about the general encouragement to believers through the tribulation. So chapter 10 is a progression. And we have to see it in that light. And he's going to call the 12 disciples. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. The harvest is plenteous. And he's going to send laborers into those specific har uh, harvests. In verse 5, it says, Then twelve, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, going specifically to Israel. Now in Acts chapter 1, this commission would change when God says, Go into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But specifically at this time, they're going just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, we are not preaching that today. We're preaching the cross of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. And in verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Now this is very important. 
right? He goes, he goes, you're going to go out and I'm, I'm giving you authority and I'm giving you the power to do these specific things, right? But he goes, freely ye have received, freely give. They could have made a good penny off of the works that they were doing. And I'm going to tell you today, these faith healers, they kind of skip over this verse. If they freely had the power to heal people through Christ, they wouldn't charge you money for the tissue that they blew their nose in. And they wouldn't send you these, you know, if, if, you'll, if you'll give this seed, if you'll give $10,000 to my private ministry, you'll give all this kind of stuff. Right? It's just garbage, right? Jesus told him, he goes, he goes, provide not a, we'll, we'll keep reading here. He says in verse uh, nine, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves for the workman is worthy of his meat. Now, today, do we do that? When we, when we send out missionaries, do they just go to the field unprepared without anything? No. Some of them did. Hudson Taylor did. Some, some other people did. But nowadays, we our missionaries go on deputation for three years and raise up support before they go to the field. This was a completely different ministry given to his disciples to neglect any kind of physical provision because the kingdom was at hand. And judgment was going to be measured by people's reception of their authority given by Christ himself. And you'll see that in a second. In verse uh, 11, and into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. The, the normal Hebrew uh, salutation was shalom, it meant peace, right? They would come in pronouncing peace to that household. Verse 13, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. The, 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 the disciples were given the authority from Christ to either pronounce peace on an individual's house or judgment because it was a harvest. So if they would come into a house and, and the Jews of that house, right? They weren't going into Gentile houses. If the Jews received them, provided for their needs, allowed them to further their ministry in the harvest, they would be seen as clean when judgment came from God in regards to this kingdom. That would, that would help them as far as their entrance into the kingdom. But it says in verse 13, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return unto you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Now, do we, when we go door knocking, we don't do this, right? If someone slams a door in our face, we try to come through this second time and reach those people. We aren't, we aren't pronouncing judgment on people by their rejection or rejection. I mean, there's some people that it took years to get them to come to Christ, right? We don't have this type of ministry. And it's interesting in Acts chapter 13, for sake of time, we won't go there. But um, I, I believe it was Paul and Barnabas. The Jews had kicked them out of the city. And it was the Jews that did this, though. It wasn't the Gentiles. And it says that Paul and Barnabas kicked off the dust of their feet back to those Jews as a sign. Remember, that was when Paul says, God offered you salvation, but ye judged yourself unworthy of everlasting life. And Paul, as a sign to the Jews, as that testimony that was given to them at this time, he shook the dust off his feet to them pronouncing their specific judgment. And so this whole ministry, was it was a kingdom ministry. It, it was to determine whether or not these Jews, by accepting their apostolic authority, by accepting the delegated authority from the king, which was Jesus and his delegates, it would determine their position as far as judgment. And you'll see in verse 15, it says, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Right? Then for that city. So basically what these what the disciples are doing is they're going throughout the cities of Jerusalem in, in, in all the cities uh, surrounding like Judea, Galilee, all these all these places. And they're going in and these cities are either going to receive the kingdom message or deny it. 
And on judgment day, we know being specifically the great, great white throne judgment, they're going to face judgment for their reception of the disciples or the rejection of the kingdom message when that comes in the future. Now, as we get into verse 16, we're, this, is, this is where it starts to become prophetic to the, to the Jews. In verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Now again, some of this happened in the Gospels. We understand that after Jesus Christ was resurrected and went back to heaven, we understand that a lot of all the all the apostles died a death of martyrdom. Besides John, he was he he just got thrown into a pad of boiling oil and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But they all faced judgment and stood before certain principalities, you know, specifically for their faith in Christ. But as you go into verse nineteen, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what we what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Right. That's a testimony also to the fact that, you know, these apostles wrote the New Testament. And so when they're writing their letters, when they're standing before in judgment, it's literally the Holy Spirit giving them testimony of what they, they should record and what they should say to those who are specifically um, judging them or persecuting, persecuting them. Now, in verse 21, it says, And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Now, again, remember when Jesus said, he goes, if you don't hate your father and mother or sister and brother, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. Now, this is future, right? This is future. When, when, when the Jews go back to the tribulation, what's known as the time of Jacob's trouble, you understand that you're not going to be able to eat if you don't get the mark of the beast. If you don't bow down to the false image, you're going to have to go into hiding, right? And there's literally going to be family members who are going to sell out other family members um, for the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ, right? They're going to deliver Jews. The family members are going to separate. They're going to deceive one another. They're going to sell each other out. This is future tense of what's going to happen. And in verse 22, it says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Shall be saved. He's talking future tense of the Jews that are going to go through the seven years of tribulation, right? Because they're going to either have to endure till the end to enter the kingdom or they're going to have to die for the sake of Christ. And as we go down to verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee ye to another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. Now look, did the disciples go over all the cities of Israel already? Yeah. Does that mean it was fulfilled? No. Because what he's saying is, is during that period of the tribulation, as the Jews go into hiding, right? They're going to flee to the mountains. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to go into hiding to not be persecuted, what he's saying is, is don't seek martyrdom. When they persecute you, flee you to another city. Flee you to another city. Because as they go into hiding, that means at that time of persecution, the Son of Man is coming back pretty soon. So he says, you're not going to, at that period of time, future tense, to the Jews going through the tribulation, you're not going to pass over every city in Israel before the Son of Man comes back. It's a message of hope. It's a message of encouragement to the Jews going through the tribulation. Now in verse uh, 24, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is even enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house deals above, how much more shall they call them of his household? Right? He's saying, if they've called me, Jesus, the Christ, the King, the Messiah, Satan, what do you think they're going to do to you? 
They took me. Remember Paul says that Jesus was obedient to death, even the death of the cross? If they put the Messiah on the cross, what do you think they're going to do to you as his messengers, as members of his household? In verse 26, Christ says, Fear not them, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetop. Now look, again, the disciples did not go through this stuff yet, right? Jesus, Jesus died, was buried, rose again. You have the apostles' ministry in the first book of Acts. They were persecuted, but this is talking about the nation of Israel as a whole, the Jews that are going to go through that tribulation. And so during that time, if you're a Jew, you're going to be very scared because you're going to have to do things in order to obtain food. Give us this day our daily bread. You're going to have to hide in order not to be killed. You're going to have to try to hide your family, right? And so when these things are going on, it's going to be very tempting to sell yourself out for God, right? Because you don't think that he sees, but God is commanding them as encouragement. He goes, look, I see what happens in darkness. I see what's going on. In verse 28, fear not them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't, I don't have to, look, I don't have to fear man, but again, I'm not worried about the eternal destination of my soul because I'm sealed into the day of redemption. During the tribulation, man, your soul, you're going to have to keep it till the end. You're going to have to endure it till the end. I don't care what John MacArthur says. All right, you're going to have to endure it till the end in order to keep that thing from going to the pits of hell. In verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Right, God is giving the Jews encouragement. I know the hairs on your head. I'm watching you as you go through this persecution. Someone puts a gun to your head and you confess me, I'm going to save you. In verse 31, fear ye not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, I've preached that verse out of context a lot. I have got it wrong, all right? I, 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 that is that verse, I came to send peace, not a sword, or send a, um, a sword, not peace. That is not to the body of Christ. What does Paul say in all his letters? Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, right? When Jesus comes back during the second advent, he's not coming to send peace. He's got a sword, right? He's gonna, he's gonna tear down the nations with the word of his mouth. That's what that's talking about. But in reference to verse 32, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. Hold your place in Matthew and go to Revelations. Go to Revelations chapter uh, 20. Revelations chapter 20, just to show you um, the context of what he's talking about. In Revelations chapter 20, go to verse uh, 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who is he talking about? He's talking about those who confessed Christ before men, didn't deny him. Some of them were beheaded for it. Some of them were killed for it. Some of them made it to the end. They endured to the end and they were saved. But listen to what verse 5 says. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they that be priests of God and of Christ shall reign with him a thousand years. Now we understand that after Armageddon, after all those things happen, when Jesus Christ locks up Satan for a thousand years and he reigns, he's going to reign with the Jews that made it till the end, that didn't take the mark of the beast, 
that confess Jesus Christ, right? And those who died are actually going to become resurrected and they're going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. But those who didn't confess Christ, those who gave up their soul to save their life, right? They're going to go straight to hell and they're going to stay there until the great white throne judgment where they are, they're pulled back out of, out of hell and they stand before Christ. And what is he going to do? They're going to, they're going to ask God to get into the kingdom of heaven. But what is God going to say? You denied me before men, therefore I'm going to deny you before my Father, which is in so 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 this is all hinging, right? Their salvation is hinging upon whether or not they make it through the tribulation. That's not us. I'm not enduring till the end, right? I'm not I'm not fearing for my soul right now. If I were to die today, I'm going to go straight to heaven, right? It's a, it's a different ministry, and it's so important because you can confuse the living daylights out of people if you if you use these verses in a wrong way. So go back with me to uh, Matthew chapter uh, ten here. Matthew chapter 10, and we're in verse 35. It says, For I am come to I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall they be of his own household, right? People are going to deceive each other. They're going to sell each other out to get food and to live and, and, and to make it through. And in verse 38, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now again, this this verse right here, you hear Christians that are New Testament believers say that we have to lose our life to find it or this or that. Look, I don't have to lose my physical life in order to find my spiritual life. I can find my spiritual life while I'm still alive. Right? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But God's saying, this is encouragement to the Jews to make it through because if I got I'm going to tell you this, if I have a gun to my head and I'm a Jew going through the tribulation, I'm going to have to remember this verse going, man, it's okay for me to die because God promised me that if I lose my life, I'm going to find it on the other side. I mean, that is specifically to the Jews. In verse 40, he said, he that receiveth you receiveth me. Again, talking to the disciples. He that receiveth you receiveth me, delegated authority. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of those little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I shall say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. What is he talking about? He's going, look, this what the Jews' reception to the kingdom program determines their place in the kingdom of heaven. Right? What they do, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven shall be the greatest, etc. Right? What they do when God is offering the kingdom to them will determine their place in the kingdom. And God is going, if you receive these disciples, you're going to receive a reward. If you, if you receive, Just like if you receive a prophet, you're going to receive a prophet's reward. If a little child comes to you with a cup of cold water, like let's say that I invited a disciple into my house, and my daughter brings a cup of cold water to appease that disciple's thirst, that God identifies with that child ministering to the disciple during the kingdom program, that even God sees that as that meriting a reward in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what he's talking about in Matthew chapter 10. This is, man, this is just to the disciples, just to the Jews. As a, as a Gentile believer, I can't claim any, I mean, any of this stuff. Now we're supposed to stand for Christ. Our life's not supposed to be one, you know, specifically of this world. But if you get in there and you start preaching that stuff to the New Testament church, you're going to confuse people, um, just confuse people. We're not enduring to the end to be saved. Um, you know, we're not identifying. I don't, I don't have apostolic authority. I wasn't commissioned by Christ to heal people or to raise dead people. 
Uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. Our, our strength is made perfect in weakness, right? Weakness. And a lot of people, they go through times like these where their faith is tried and they go to the Gospels and they try to abuse the Gospels to say, we as the body of Christ should have this power over governments and over all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, we, our, our symbol is a cross and, and we, we forfeit our rights. We forfeit the things of, of this world in order to win people to Christ. Christ said, Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some, but he's talking about their spiritual lives, not their physical lives. And so you just got to be able to separate that, uh, the two ministries there. And I hope that was an encouragement to you. Next week, we'll get into chapter 11, Lord willing, in chapter 12. Um, I'm not sure if Pastor has anything, anything you want to close with, or we'll just dismiss in prayer. You do? Okay, we'll dismiss in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for today. Uh, thank you for your word, God. Thank you for uh, just our, our church and the ministry that you've given to us. God, I cannot imagine um, just being in this world without you. I can't even imagine not even having a Bible. Um, just how terrible that would be, God, to just have no hope. Uh, we praise you for our salvation. We praise you, Lord, for everything that you've done. We pray for our church. We pray for our church people. Uh, we pray for people that are lost, who in need of hope, in need of your word, that you would help us to be lights, that you would help us to be salt, that you would help us to minister to them, to reconcile this world through Christ, to be ambassadors, to have charity, God, to have faith in you, Christ. We just pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.